0: Welcome to the My Buddy Green Podcast. I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Lisa Mosconi is the Director of the Women's Brain Initiative and Associate Director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Weill Cornell Medical College, where she serves as an associate professor of neuroscience in neurology and radiology. In addition, she's an adjunct faculty member at the NYU Department of Psychiatry and is the author of the new must-read book, The XX Brain, the groundbreaking science empowering women to maximize cognitive health and prevent Alzheimer's disease. Lisa, welcome.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: It is so great to have you here. We are a big fan of your work and so excited for your new book, The XX Brain. And me particularly, I am surrounded by women <laughs> i married my wife obviously we have two little girls and i'm very close with my mother so i'm surrounded by women and i'm very interested in the xx brain because it's all about women yes. and brain health
1: unapologetically
0: and it, 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 and we're in a real crisis i had no idea how bad the numbers were with regards to brain health, specifically Alzheimer's, women outnumber men two to one right. in Alzheimer's. Yes. What's going on?
2: Well, yeah, that's
1: a, that's a great question, what is going on? And it's also interesting that it's not just Alzheimer's, so to add more stress to the conversation, women are twice as likely as men to have anxiety and depression. Not to mention headaches and migraines. We're also three times more likely to have an autoimmune disorder, including those that attack the brain, like multiple sclerosis. We're far more likely to have a meningioma, which is uh, the most common form of brain tumor. And we're also far more likely to die of a stroke, should a stroke take place. So Alzheimer's, I think, is the most, is the scariest mm-hmm. disease, perhaps, where women are overrepresented. Uh, because the numbers are incredible. So Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia. It currently affects almost 6 million people in the United States alone, and is projected to triple by the year 2050 with an expected 15 million patients in the United States, which for context is the population of New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles put together. Wow! So it's an enormous amount of people, and the thing is that almost two thirds of all these patients might be women. So for every man suffering from Alzheimer's, right now there are two women. And the question, like your question is a great question, is why is that? What could potentially account for that? And I'm so glad you asked, because that was my question since college. The reason being, I have a family history of Alzheimer's disease that really seems to target the women in my family. So my grandmother had three siblings. There were three sisters and one brother. And all three sisters developed and died of dementia, whereas the brother did not. So that really led me personally to look at Alzheimer's disease as the main focus of my research, because at first I just wanted to understand what causes Alzheimer's and how do we stay away from it. But then I started thinking, well, is it just my family or is it really something that affects women? perhaps more than men. And it turns out statistically that, yes, that is the case. So women are more frequently affected by Alzheimer's than men. But for a really long time, that was kind of just explained away by saying that, well, you know, women live longer than men, and Alzheimer's is a disease of old age. So of course, there are more women than men with Alzheimer's. And that was slightly upsetting for me sure. as a scientist, as <laughs> it's a just woman.
0: dismissive. It's like, ah, oh, whatever, you live longer.
1: Right, it's like a whatever kind of answer, which was not just people, but also the government. Really, looking at that was not a priority. However, do women live that much longer than men? That was my point, That was like 19, I Was but like, well, is that the case? So in the United States, women live on average four years longer than men, not 20. And in other countries, like in in the UK, women live about two and a half to three years longer than men. However, Alzheimer's and dementia is the number one cause of death for women and not for men. Hmm. You know, you would think that a 10 years gap would really explain that. But if we're talking two, four years, there must be more to that. And more importantly, it turns out that Alzheimer's disease is not a disease of old age. So many studies recently, including A lot of my own work has shown that Alzheimer's disease starts with negative changes in the brain years, if not decades, prior to clinical symptoms. And our work has shown that for women, we seem to develop that earlier than men. So it's not just that women live longer. Women tend to develop Alzheimer's changes in their brains before men do, and specifically in midlife, during menopause. Mm I'm going to pause because there was a lot.
0: <laughs> so what have we gotten so wrong? It's like here we are 2020. This has been around for so long. And yes. yet you know, we're talking about it now, but we weren't talking about it years ago.
1: No, no. I think it's it's become more an object of conversation in the past four years, perhaps, maybe three.
0: And I think largely because of you. <laughs> but, but, what, what have you but, but seriously, what, have, what have you picked up on? that other people haven't, was it just curiosity, uh, looking at the data in a different way?
1: Yes, I think it's really about thinking about women's brains differently than it was done before. Well, also just for context, I've been trying to look at women's brains for 20 years. I really started, I was 19 when I started, and I moved to the United States to do that, and I just could not get a grant to do it. And now just in this past couple of years, I was able to raise enough money to have enough funds to launch the Women's Brain Initiative at wild Cornell in New York City, which is a research program entirely dedicated not just to women's brains but also really to understanding how brain health plays out differently in women than in men. We're also very interested in men and what causes Alzheimer's in men because one-third of all Alzheimer's patients are men. So the question is really what kind of risk factors seem to activate the Alzheimer's predisposition in women and men, are they different? And the answer seems to be really yes.
0: It's more than, i and sorry, you had this great term, bikini medicine. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Can you explain that, I think?
1: Gladly, (laughs) very glad. I, I believe, and many people believe that the field of medicine has been biased, in that historically, medical professionals actually believed that men and women were essentially the same person with different reproductive organs, and that specifically women were the same as men, except for those body parts that would be covered under the bikinis or the breasts and tubes. And that's obviously a reductive understanding of what a woman is, but it really permeated the field of medicine until very recently, to the point that women ended up being excluded from research for decades, in part because of concerns about pregnancies and really protecting women, which is quite nice, but the end result was that for many, many years, women were just not part of research or clinical trials, and therefore women were not informing research either. So a lot of medical research has been based on men, and the recommendations and the understanding of a disease that we have is largely based on the disease manifestations in men and not in women. But then we treat them the same way. Hmm. So that's been a real issue for for women in so many fields.
0: So you mentioned menopause. It starts in the brain. Yeah. What? Why menopause? What, what happ- what, what's going on there? What's going on there?
1: Yeah, um, so I'm, I'm very surprised that I'm talking about menopause because there's this, this this issue in medicine, I think, that number one, we believe the women are the same thing as men, right? Except for reproductive organs. Uh, but at the same time, we tend to think of our bodies as different parts. Say, so like an endocrinologist only studies hormones, mm. and a cardiologist only studies the heart, and a neurologist only studies the brain. But the truth is that our brains are in constant interactions with the rest of us and then the interactions between the brain and the reproductive organs are really crucial for brain health and brain aging, especially in women. And the reason is that, as everybody knows, men and women have different hormones somewhat. So men have more more testosterone and women have more estrogens. And both these hormones are really important to give your brain energy they're very energizing hormones. We tend to think of testosterone and estrogens as involved in reproduction and having mm-hmm. kids. But in reality, these hormones have a lot of effects inside their brains. In particular, they literally push our neurons to bring glucose to make energy. So if your hormones are high, your brain energy is high. But then what happens to testosterone is that it, can, it doesn't quite decline that much right. over time. Whereas for women, estrogens pretty much plummet when women go through menopause. So if you think of this hormones as having some kind of superpowers for the brain, women lose the superpower around the time that menopause hits, right? And it's like the brain is left a little bit more vulnerable, has less of a it's like a whole army is kind of gone. So if you have a predisposition, for example, to Alzheimer's disease, that's when the predisposition tends to become an actual risk that we can see using brain scans. Hmm. So, in women who are going through menopause, we have shown that the brain starts showing reductions in brain energy levels, and that kind of correlates with the formation of amyloid plaques or Alzheimer's plaques in women's brains. So, we're talking women in their 50s, not in their 70s. It really gives us a completely different timeline to start doing risk assessments especially in women.
0: So if you're a woman who's going through menopause, what's on your checklist of what to do?
1: Well, right now, your checklist says, go to the doctor and find out if you're in perimenopause, postmenopause, do you want to take hormones, do you not want to? From my perspective, and we were talking about thinking about things a little differently, I would strongly recommend a brain health assessment. Because if you have medical risks, menopause seems to be the turning point for those medical risks to become potential medical issues. Like, if you are for any reason predisposed to depression, menopause for so many women is when depression actually hits. Right. Right. Most like first major depressive uh, episodes for so many women really come up during menopause, or actually, during perimenopause, which could be when you're 45 years old. If you have a predisposition to Alzheimer's disease, for many women, that really manifests itself as the brain starting to accumulate Alzheimer's plaques around that time. So for me, it's really helpful if I can see that right now, that you're 45 or 50, so we can get a really strong baseline and just put you on an Alzheimer's prevention plan And then keep doing brain scans over time to make sure that the plaques don't increase. We want to stabilize it as much as we can.
0: So, one, no family history in genetics.
1: Well, you know. That's a big one. Yes, that's a very big one, but we find it also in people without a family history. Well, I was going
0: to ask you where I was going, was how do we know of the women who have Alzheimer's how many? Had a family history. What percentage of those of those women had a family history versus those who did not?
1: That depends. Um, it's about thirty percent for a maternal family history and about nine percent for a paternal family history. Like having a maternal family history. Since so, if your mother
0: ages. or grandmother had it, mother, mother, yes. And then fo- got it.
1: Yes, there are more people with a mother affected by Alzheimer's disease than people with a father affected. And then there's a minority of people with both parents with Alzheimer's, which is unfortunate.
0: And if you, what if you have no family history? Still be concerned? Or just not as likely. It's still a concern, but not I as likely. I would
1: say it is a concern because so many Alzheimer's patients do not have an obvious family history, and so there's also a genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's that's become very, very trendy. It's called the ApoE yep. genotype.
2: Yep, but the truth, ApoE, right?
1: ApoE, yep. Yes. And You're comes- talking
0: to the guy who gets the labs and the 23andMe and <laughs> all that stuff, so I, I, yes. I love it.
1: Right, so it comes in three different variants. It's called an Epsilon 2, 3, and 4. Mm-hmm. The E2 or Epsilon 2 variety seems to be protective against Alzheimer's. The E3 is kind of neutral. The E4 has been associated with an increased risk. It doesn't cause Alzheimer's disease. It just puts you at higher risk. But even then, more than 60% of all Alzheimer's patients don't have an APOE4 Hmm. genotype. So there's something more. And even if you look at the genetic mutations that cause Alzheimer's, they're very rare, but there are a couple. They are found in no more than 2% of all alzheimer's cases so there's more to alzheimer's than sure. genetics and you know when i started obviously i was looking at genetics i was working with people with the genetic mutations and it was just so obvious that that was not the entire story that there was more to it which led me and my colleagues to look at medical history was the most obvious thing to look at but also lifestyle and environment and it turns out all of those are really important
0: so I, I wanna to go to lifestyle actually yeah. next, but before we go there, is there a certain age where you're over the hump? So uh, if yeah. it starts in like perimenopause, menopause in the fifties, if you're seventy and you're sharp and you're feeling great, are you out of the woods? Or
1: I would say your likelihood of developing Alzheimer's is, is lower if you have no subjective cognitive complaints and no objective cognitive Impairment. So if you test normal on the neuropsych um, test that we use, then your likelihood of getting Alzheimer's is low, but it's not. Got you know, so, so, what is
0: a neuropsych test?
1: Neuropsychological testing is what we do to assess cognitive function um, by age.
0: So, it's sex like and asking education. questions around.
1: It's really testing. Like, it's a solid hour, hour and a half wow, of probing I different. I don't know if I could pass that right now. With two kids, well, you know, you would be, yeah. I
0: sip my black coffee. (laughs) So let's go back to stress and lifestyle and environment and all those, and sleep. I'll throw sleep in there as I'm short on sleep today. Mm -hmm. All those things and how they play a role.
1: Yeah, sure. So there are many risk factors. So Alzheimer's disease is probably uh, caused by genetic and non-genetic risk factors that we also call as modifiable and non-modifiable so non-modifiable risk factors are all those things that we just can't touch for now it's like your age, your family history, your DNA, um, your sex, your family right mm-hmm. so we can we can't change that for you however there's a number of things that we can actually modify that really have been linked to a higher risk of Alzheimer's like your medical history if you have, Uh, Heart disease, that's a a risk factor for Alzheimer's, like things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high triglyceride levels. They seem to potentially affect your brain as well by possibly reducing blood flow and oxygen supply to the brain. There's diabetes has been shown to also negatively impact the brain. And about six to seven percent of all Alzheimer's cases have also diabetes. So that seems to be a trigger for some people, as obesity is, right? And then there's lifestyle, like diet, exercise, sleep, stress, toxin exposure. What we have been doing, which I think is quite interesting, is to look at how these risk factors impact brain health differently in women and in men. And if you really look at associations, at least, between these risks and future risk of Alzheimer's and dementia, there are very different pathways towards Alzheimer's that are really based on sex. So for men, the major risk factor for Alzheimer's I'm listening.
0: <laughs> I'm listening.
1: <laughs> well, I'm leading in. I'm ready. Well, you're doing well because it's really not being married to a woman.
0: Oh, wow. I'm I married. I, I'm good, guys. I'm going to yeah, make it.
1: Uh, four, four ladies in your family. But the research started a long time ago. So the only information we have is about regular couples I would argue that you don't have to be married to a woman it's just, just, married, being, be in a just, just being in a solid relationship nurturing relationship where your husband or your spouse or your friend partner is actually supportive of your health as well and you, you help each other out I would think that's the bottom line basically men need to be in a relationship
0: yeah men just, men just can't do it alone <laughs> yeah. they get lonely they don't know what to do they start drinking bad things happen they don't it's, eat
1: right they don't go to the doctor I hear you. I hear you. So that, but I think it's very, it's actually really nice, no? To know that support, having a support system is so important for men. For women. Men need,
0: sorry, (laughs) men need women. It's not the other way around.
2: (laughs) You're right. You need the research
1: supports, exactly what you just said. Yes. Like for me, women being married or not married, we don't know, we, do like, we don't need right? you guys. Doesn't seem to <laughs> correlate with the risk of dementia, but there are other things to do. And the number one thing for women is hormonal health. And it's really important to me as a brain person to acknowledge that because when we talk about risk factors for Alzheimer's, we're all looking for cholesterol. Do you have high cholesterol? What's your insulin level? Do you have diabetes, pre-diabetes, do you smoke? What's your diet? What's your exercise? For women, our research really showed that menopause is the number one factor that determines whether or not a woman in midlife gets the Alzheimer's plaques, followed by hormonal therapy and hysterectomies. So, cool. uh, this is something I want to touch on. But one in nine American women gets her uterus and/or ovaries removed, often prior to menopause. And I, I want to mention that because nobody seems to know that having the uterus and or the ovaries removed before menopause correlates with a much higher risk of alzheimer's in women and the number one cause of that surgery is fibroids Mm -hmm. which should not lead to removing the ovaries in many cases what happens is that you get the surgery and it's just easier to take everything out you know sure but in some cases it's not neat, it's not necessary, so I think it's a good topic of conversation and discussion with your doctors. So what's the safest way to really protect our bodies and brains?
0: So what do you say to someone who's listening right now who's had that surgery and is saying to themselves silently, like, oh, shit, what, what can, assuming they have no signs... Right, 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 what can right. They do? So we're it's talking, like I've already done it. Like I had a hysterectomy. I have done it.
1: I had yeah. a hysterectomy and with or without the ovaries removed. I think it's really important to understand that that could potentially increase a woman's risk sure. of Alzheimer's and that risk uh, increases. So there's a little bit of an increase of your uterus if only your uterus were, was removed and not the ovaries. The risk is higher if one of the ovaries was removed with or without the uterus, and is highest for both ovaries being taken out. It seems, however, that doing hormonal therapy, starting from the time of surgery, or as close as possible to the time of surgery, and continuing to take hormones until the natural age of menopause, which is usually 50-51 for most women, is protective and seems to really revert back the risk. So this is something that is important to discuss with your doctors. And
0: So what if it happens during menopause?
1: Do you have the ovaries taken out? Yeah. That doesn't seem to to increase risk of Alzheimer's. Got it,
0: got it. So go back to lifestyle. Yeah, we got it. We got on the the. We got a little not off track, but so with lifestyle, how, how do you? Let's go through like each category, if you will. Sure. So nutrition, stress, sleep. Yeah. Movement. Sleep. <laughs> go back I to just sleep. Keep on saying sleep. Um, <laughs> How do you rank them?
2: Ooh,
1: can you rank them? Or, I'm not sure. I think it depends I think every person is different, right? And there are things that work better depending on age and what kind of stage of life you're in. Like if you're a sleep deprived parent, perhaps high intensity interval training may not seem as appealing as sleeping. Right. I, I think it's really you know, we, we can't effectively rank um these things, unless you use a statistical approach. And the way we have been doing it is by doing brain scans. Mm -hmm. And then we have a number of papers published in good journals showing that uh, if you you use the brain scans as the thing you're trying to predict by brain aging or brain health over time, which lifestyle factors are the most impactful, usually diet and exercise come up on top, accounting for the other ones, which really does not apply to new parents. (laughs) <laughs> I, I also, you know, my daughter is four and a half, and she did not sleep for over two years. And, obviously, if you're sleep-deprived, sure. the then sleep is the most important thing. If you're not eating healthily, then you need to fi- you need to fix your diet. If you're not exercising at all, you have to start moving, so...
0: So if we focus on <laughs> diet and exercise, what is the optimal diet for brain health, and does it differ between men and women?
1: Well, thank you for asking. So. There is evidence that actually it does a little bit and differ between men and women. In general, I think a healthy diet is like a Mediterranean style. Mediterranean,
0: Mediterranean is getting a lot of points these days.
1: Well, you know, there's a lot of research on it. So as a scientist, it's important to me to look at studies like a diet that's been validated by hundreds of studies that's been really looked at indeed, what you're smiling. I love that you say,
0: as a scientist, I like validation from hundreds of studies. I just, we, we love that too. And
1: well, <laughs> it's important because, you know, what some people in-
0: say, well, I got validation yeah. on Instagram. I got a lot of likes. And <laughs> no, I, I think sold that's a very lot of important. books. We sold a lot so. of books. So I like validation. I, I, I love that approach.
1: Right. Well, the, I think the problem with diet and nutrition is that. It, it's really very important to, to check your sources. There's so much confusion out there and everybody eats and loves food and everybody has opinions. So there are opinions and then there's actual data. For me, I go by the data. And it's very important to me, as to you, um, to not follow trends. You know, trends come and go and science moves a lot slower. Than mm-hmm. any trend. So very often, all of a sudden, there's this diet that everybody follows, but there's really no data to back it up. But the Mediterranean diet is good because it's a very flexible diet. It's a very sensible diet. It's rich in veggies and fruits and whole grains and legumes. If you don't want to eat whole grains, don't eat them. For me, as long as you have enough fiber in your diet, that's really the important thing. And then there's fish. And we know that omega-3 fatty acids from fish, especially the polyunsaturated ones so dha and epa are really crucial for brain health they're part of our cell men, um our brain cell membranes and then smaller amounts of meat and dairy which is like not not eating them you know eat mm-hmm. them it just you can't eat them all day long in huge quantities you just do it sensibly and sweets are also a part of the diet but as a treat as they should be and they're not processed foods it's a diet that is very fresh you know, it's a sun-kissed diet, I'm Italian, so I can attest to that. The food is really good, it's really fresh, and it's very, it's very clean. Mm-hmm. There are very little pollutants in the food. And this diet has been shown to be particularly supportive of women's brain, brains and women's health overall. So women on this diet, as compared to women on the Western diet, have a much lower risk of cognitive decline, of depression, of heart disease, of stroke, of cancer, and they also have fewer hot flashes.
0: You pretty much hit every major killer of Americans yeah. next to car accidents. Pretty much. Like every, yes. uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, but it's true, you know, we, we know that it works, but why not? It's also and very tasty.
0: You, you missed olive oil.
1: I missed olive oil, you're right. Those are the good fats that okay. are protective of the olive heart. Olive oil and, well and, and avocados brain. and nuts. Avocado is not part of the Mediterranean diet, it's but it's delicious, and I think it's it not. Good I did not food. know that. But they don't grow in the Mediterranean.
0: That makes sense. Area.
1: We just don't have it. Yeah.
0: Can we eat avocados? Of course. Okay. Well, we had Walter Longo <laughs> on here one time, and he was like, "You know what? I'm not sure about avocados." And I felt like someone told me Santa Claus didn't exist. When oh. I was a couple years old. <laughs> um, so that was for women. What about men?
1: Yeah. Well, this diet seems to work really well for women and for men. Okay. However, most of the research that we have on diets is based on the average person, genderless person, and a lot of the studies had a lot more men than women in those studies of diets because they were all based on heart disease. So historically, diet was used really to lower the risk of heart disease. So they would target men, mostly because men have a higher risk of that. Sure. So it's really important for me as the director of the Women's Brain Initiative to also look at studies that look specifically at women. But it looks like it really works for, for men and women. The One difference that I find interesting is the way the men and women process energy sources. So the main energy sources are glucose, a simple carbohydrate, and fat from saturated fat, mostly, Right, we can burn them to make energy. But the way that our bodies burn and handle and store these energy sources is different a little bit between men and women because of our hormones in part. So estrogens are really good at stabilizing glucose metabolism, Hmm. which means that women can handle carbohydrates a little bit more efficiently than men, whereas men are better at burning fat. Interesting. Which is one of the reasons that I think now everybody's going on high fat diets and they seem to really work well for a lot of men and women get mixed results, Mm -hmm. right? So that's interesting to me. As
0: well, you were talking about trends. Mm. I think when I think of trends, I think of intermittent fasting, I think yeah. of keto. Glu-
1: that's high fat diet, right yeah. like keto yeah. Right? Yeah. yes.
0: Uh, gluten- free, vegan. Um, mm. What's your take on all those different trends?
1: They come and go. <laughs> well
0: what what what's what is the, let me rephrase that. What does the science say with regards to brain health in terms of call it intermittent fasting and keto?
1: Right. So there are two different things. Yes. There's quite a bit of science on fasting. And I think it's it's good science, it's strong, solid science. It was started at the NIH but Dr. Matson, who's a big hero of mine, really loved his work. And he did show how not starving new neurons, but um short times of food deprivation seems to strengthen your system and makes your neurons more resilient to oxidative stress, which makes sense as an evolutionary mechanism, right? Back then when the brains were really developing, our ancestors had to go winters with very little food or with scarcity. And that's really when your brain needs to be at its best to be resourceful and find alternatives. So it makes sense that uh, the brain can handle these periods of scarcity and not being weakened by that so that's really good and i i think that well intermittent fasting is a convenient way to think about it it's very popular right now to stop eating at a certain time and then go like 12 14 hours without Mm -hmm. eating which when i was growing up we just called nighttime
0: (laughs) we call it sleeping right
1: so (laughs) technically you shouldn't be eating at night makes a lot of sense but If we want to call it intermittent fasting, that's fine by me. I think it's good in general. I think it's good to eat a little bit less. I find that there's a tendency to overeat or just be constantly snacking or eating. And I think that could really help uh, in making people more aware that you can live even if you're on an airplane for five hours and there's no food, you'll survive, right? You don't have to run to Starbucks right before you board the plane.
0: And what about keto?
1: Uh, keto diet, uh, there's, there's perhaps less evidence than people think that it might be good for the brain. There are a few studies that are like clinical trials and some failed. Like one was this study uh, in mild Alzheimer's patients and they showed that um, treatment with this precursor, the ketone body, is actually not hmm. improved cognition in mild Alzheimer's patients. Then there are a few studies by a colleague a colleague of ours, Dr. Krikorian, showing cognitive improvements in patients with my cognitive impairment, but they were like 20 patients. And that's about it. Like, there isn't a lot of right. strong research to support the notion that people should eat all that fat and really go completely carb free. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't think, know. I think it would be nice to have more research before. Really adopting such a restrictive diet. Like, my concern is really the restrictiveness
2: right.
1: of these approaches and potential nutritional deficiencies. Because, you know, some people on keto, I have some friends who are on keto diets and they're doing fantastic. They eat a lot of salmon and a lot of avocado. But most people who go high fat eat a ton of meat and dairy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we know that it's just not healthy. So it's a bit of an excuse to just overdo it in a way that may not be as healthy as you think.
0: Well, what's interesting too, in the back of my mind, you're saying this change happens with women. So me, I'm 45, I used to eat a lot of meat. You do? I used to. Uh. In my 40s, and I had low cholesterol, everything. In my 40s, all that stuff started to catch up. Mm-hmm. And so like my lipid profile started going the wrong way if I started to eat a lot of meat. Mm-hmm. And I take out the meat, boom. Mm. So, But like something changed in my 40s. It wasn't that way in my even 38 39 it's so it's like oh, maybe something's going on there too for men Sure, uh,
1: probably but also i think everyone's reaction to diet is very personal that's totally. why not the problems i have with trends you know that maybe it's not the right trend for you but you feel like you should do it because mm-hmm. it's been pushed on you but i think it's much more reasonable to really find what kind of foods and nutrients your body needs right specifically by being tested like oh i'm all about testing you know i did blood tests to myself to see all my nutritional profile. Where is my vitamin A, you know, C, E, my lipids, obviously you measure them all the time. And I think it's a good way to look at your brain. What does your brain
2: need?
0: So you mentioned being restrictive. And so I'm curious about coffee, alcohol, (laughs) grains, and, and, and carbs. So let's go one by one. We could start with coffee as I sip my black coffee.
1: Right. So coffee has actually been associated with a perhaps lower risk of developing dementia at a reasonable dose. So these studies have shown that there's a little bit like an inverted U-shape, where if you drink no coffee, your risk of Alzheimer's disease is as high as that of a person who drinks a ton of coffee. But if you're right in the middle, which is about one espresso a day or two cups of your coffee a day, that seems to be really helpful. Because I think the reason that um, caffeine is a stimulant, it is a vasodilator, so it increases blood flow to the brain, and that is helpful to brain cells and to the vascular system. But it has to be the right amount. Y- your heart needs to be fine with that. that I, I would say I'm <laughs> six foot seven, so I yes. get to drink more.
0: Maybe. Most people. It depends.
1: Let's look at your heart.
0: Well, I, <laughs> I, it's actually good. Oh, great. No, um, perfect. But so back to so you mentioned espresso, though. You yes. like espresso better than coffee, than black well, coffee. Yes. I mean, I'm me you. Well, oh, espresso
1: tie, is black we, coffee. We, well. <laughs> <laughs> so, espresso has been scientifically proven to have the highest antioxidant power of all beverages. It's, it's true. I have references. I love it. Yes. Yes, and so. it's important because of the way the coffee beans are treated and processed. So you don't want the caffeine to just sit in the tank for the day. You know, you want it freshly brewed, minimally processed, and it's right. It, it just also is the antioxidant content because it's very concentrated, so it's a big shot of
0: I love it. Espresso, guys. Science espresso. supports espresso.
1: It well, you know, I think it makes <laughs> sense. But then again, it's a very personal response. And I, sure. I want to add for women, I have a lot of friends who go to Starbucks and just tell me, I can't drink that coffee. I cannot. Sure. If I have an espresso at Starbucks, I'll, I'll just go into full mode, like palpitations and jitters. And it's also important for women to know that the response to caffeine, alcohol, and all stimulants really depend on your menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. So as long as your estrogens are higher, which is the first two weeks, you don't need as much of the stimulants to have a good response. In the second part of the month, because your progesterone is higher and is an inhibiting hormone, it's a soothing hormone, then you're going to feel like that cup of coffee is not doing it for you and you're going to drink three times as much (laughs) and it's still not working because your hormones won't let it work for you, but your heart will suffer, your sleep will suffer. So I think it's important to know that you, need to, you really need to think about your hormones and how the hormones affect your reactions to food and drinks and everything
0: else. And what about alcohol?
1: Same, same wow. for alcohol.
0: Do you, have a, do you have a approved or favorite type <laughs> of alcohol? Some people, you know, Mediterranean people think yeah, red, red wine. Red wine. I
1: think it's the most obvious thing. The only research showing positive effects on cognition or at least on a lower risk of dementia looks at red wine. is the one that's been shown to be potentially supportive because of the high antioxidant content. So I just want to explain here. The brain is the organ that is most easily affected by oxidative stress. That's because the brain runs on glucose (laughs) before we get to gluten-free. And glucose metabolism is highly efficient. Otherwise, our brains would not be burning glucose for energy. But it creates a lot of oxygen radicals or free radicals and that is oxidative stress. So in order to protect our brains, we need to get antioxidants in the brain. And the only way to do it is through our diets, which is why any food that is high in antioxidant nutrients will benefit your brain. So red wine contains polyphenols, which Mm -hmm. are antioxidant in nature, so that's probably why uh, it's good for your brain. Pomegranate juice, it's almost as as rich as red wine. In antioxidants, so if you don't like red wine like me, which is bizarre, uh, you can do pomegranate juice.
0: What are your favorite antioxidant-rich foods?
1: Blackberries, I really like that. Um, everybody goes for blueberries, but blackberries actually contain more antioxidants than blueberries, and I really like blackberry butter. We get it mm-hmm. at the farmer's market. Mm. You can also find it sometimes in health food stores, so you have it in winter. I really like that. I like berries a lot. goji berries. Mm, I like fruit. Fruit has a lot of antioxidants. So and that's nice. But also vegetables and legumes and some nuts and seeds.
0: So you brought up, before I go to legumes, you mentioned gluten. Uh-huh. And a lot of people, you know, our friend Dr. Perlmutter, who we yes. love, has a very strong opinion on, you know, he wrote a book called Grain Brain. Absolutely. What's your take on grains, gluten?
1: Well, so... Friend or foe? <laughs> <laughs> I think it really depends on your genetics. So gluten, soy, eggs, fish, those are really common allergens. And some people have very strong reactions, some people have intolerances. And for some people, it's a natural big deal. So for people with celiac disease, they should obviously completely avoid gluten. And it looks like another 6 to 7% of people have sensitivities. And probably in the United States, even more than 6% or 7% of people have sensitivities because we're constantly exposed to gluten. Like, there are so many foods that are enriched with, with gluten when they shouldn't be. The same for soy. Soybean oil is used everywhere, so mm-hmm. we're really overexposed to something that is a potential allergen. I think, I think it depends. I think it depends on your diet, on your genes, and your, your own individual response. There are people who don't do well on grains, and there are many people who do. And again, I would recommend to really know yourself, right? If eating grains is an issue for you, just make sure that you replace them with other fiber-rich foods, Mm -hmm. especially if you're a woman, again, because we know that fiber is really crucial for women's health. There's a ton of scientific studies showing that fiber really has an incredible effect, not just on digestion, which is kind of obvious, but also in regulating hormones. So even in women who have a history of breast cancer, for example, and they're not able to take hormonal therapy for menopause or for hot flashes induced by therapy, there, there are studies showing that those who follow a fiber-rich diet have a lot, really much fewer symptoms as compared to those who are on diets high in animal food and low in fiber. So however you want to get this fiber in, that fiber in, just, it's really important to do that.
0: See, we've mentioned hormone therapy a few times. Yes. Any advice for someone who's interested in hormone therapy?
1: Yes, I have a lot of advices. And in fact, <laughs> I read an Other entire than you chapter. Other should buy the book. Well, <laughs> well, you know, if you buy it, it's probably the best way, just because I want to show you one thing in the book, is this chapter is all about hormones and how hormones are very personal, and every woman's response to hormone is very different. Some women swear by hormonal therapy, some women swear at it. (laughs) And everything else in between. no, it's true. And the point is that a lot of women are not eligible, and for those who are eligible, you might have like um, a treatment decision flow chart.
0: That is a flow, that is a treatment decision flow chart. Right,
1: it tells you, here, it's complicated. No, 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 really. It's more I mean, no, like but it,
0: it, it's not a yes or no. Go do this and that. It's it requires forever, some yes. some some real thought. It requires homework.
1: some thinking. And as a scientist, I want to be very specific. <laughs> but the point is, some women are eligible, some women are not, and it it really calls for an informed conversation with your doctor. And I'm hoping to help all women get informed because you know. 850 million women have just entered or are about to enter menopause. Wow. And for many, it's, it's incredibly confusing this time of their lives, and it's really important to have the right information so that then you can go to your doctor armed with at least the information that you need to ask the right questions, and you need to know what your options are, and then you can discuss with your doctor.
0: And so on the... On the opposite end of the, the 850 million women entering menopause yeah. you know you have a young daughter we have yes. two young daughters what advice do you have for parents out there who are trying to raise healthy young daughters to have healthy healthy brains
1: well i have a lot of <laughs> lots of things that I would love to share and i want to say that i really walk my talk with my daughter Like, she knows that she's not allowed to have white sugar, for example. So, sure, she goes to a birthday party, fine, no problems, but we have no white sugar in the house. Uh, She understands that some foods are really good for you and some are not, and that she needs to really focus on the good ones. She understands the importance of exercising from a young age because there's so much research showing that especially for women, if you have a decent level of fitness, throughout your lifetime your risk of dementia is so low when you are in your 70s and 80s it is really worth the investment so she's doing karate she's four and a half and she's um she's almost an orange belt i love it it's so funny and the other thing that is really important to me as a parent of a young girl as a mom of a young girl is really to avoid toxin exposure as much as possible so there's evidence that there are very specific chemicals in the environment, but also in the household, that could potentially disrupt estrogens. They're called xenoestrogen, or estrogen-disrupting chemicals, (EDCs). And for many years, no one believed that they could impact health, especially brain health. And now this position has been revised, especially by the American Institute of Pediatrics and the American Society of Endocrinology, by saying that these compounds are indeed Health hazards, especially for women, pregnant women, and children, so especially girls. So for me, it's really important that we have hardly any plastic in the house. So
0: they love in plastic. Oh then? Are they mostly found in plastic? Where yes.
1: do you find them? There are, yeah, most are in plastic. Especially, you know, even when you read that your plastic container is BPA free, mm-hmm. there are still chemicals that can leak inside your food or your drinks, especially as you reheat. The container so let's say that you microwave your dinner and your dinner is in a plastic container you're immediately polluting your dinner with these things that act like estrogens inside your body but in a really bad way and have been shown to possibly negatively impact thyroid function and reproductive functions like leading to all sorts of issues from infertility precocious puberty miscarriages endometriosis oh. so for me, I really pay a lot of attention to that, i.e., we eat organic as much as possible when it makes sense to do that, right? There are some foods that are best uh, consumed in their organic form, not all of them, so you don't have to necessarily go sure. broke. Dirty dozen
0: and clean 15. Yes.
1: Which I saw, yeah. Exactly. Um, it's really important to look at even things like toothpaste. Why do you need to have titanium dioxide in your toothpaste? Most toothpaste what's contain favorite, titanium. What's dioxide? your favorite
0: toothpaste? I'm curious.
1: Uh, I don't remember the name of the brand. It's a French one that I buy all the time. I'll find out. Okay. You.
0: We'll have to come back to that. I'm curious. Yeah. So pl- so I'm curious, too, is it plastic with regards to food and what you're putting in your body? Not, not necessarily like toys.
1: Right. No, in okay. Italy. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, we've all the
0: toys. Everything's no. plastic.
1: No, 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 no. Things that can actually get in your Got skin it. and your body. So even lotions, I'm very sure. careful because 60% of everything that you put in your skin actually gets inside your bloodstream. Sure. And from that, it goes everywhere in your body, including potentially your brain. So I'm very careful. And plastic bottles, I try to avoid them We have glass.
0: So you also mentioned fish, EPA, DHA. I'm curious, mm-hmm. like, what other minerals, supplements, vitamins are, are good for brain health with regards to, to women and men.
1: So hmm.
0: I know so it's highly would, individualized, but
1: then, well, yes no. So I I'm part of, I'm part of the Global Council on Brain Health, sponsored by AARP. And just recently we had this really long conversation about supplements, especially supplements for brain health. And it was like thirty or thirty six of us, all scientists uh, doing clinical trials or other types of studies about foods and diets and nutrition. And the general consensus, we had a consensus statement at the end, and the consensus with that, there is no evidence that supplements can replace a healthy diet for brain health and also that many supplements available on the market are just not the claims that they make are just oh, yeah. not backed up by science 100 <laughs> percent. okay well there are so many people No, but for example with... i
0: take a fish oil i was just curious for me personally so i i love wild salmon mm. i i subscribe to smash oh. salmon mackerel s- salmon mackerel anchovy uh what's the other s sardines and herring nice i've heard like the smash like in Ah. terms of like if you're ranking your fish in terms of health benefits yeah that's wonderful. and i also take uh, a fish oil so just uh, an addition to that
1: right do you need to take the fish oil well have you been tested that's what i was saying before right so supplements i did originally were you deficient i was Ah.
0: i was now i'm not Good. And now I'm experimenting with like going off, and I, I, I do all these tests. I like get my to see what works and what doesn't. So. But
1: that's the right yes. approach, I believe. So, in the statement, there was this consensus, and then I was like, well, but if people have deficiencies, the deficiencies need to be corrected.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: that the other thing was like, well, supplements have little value unless they've really supplement. So if right. you are deficient, they have a subclinical deficiency, or I would add you are at a point in your life where you could use a little extra help
0: Mm -hmm.
2: for me it makes sense That's why they're called supplements they're supplement yeah (laughs) Yeah. but
1: the the tendency is to take like a multivitamin that contains all these different things that you probably don't need
0: yeah they don't work they're
1: in mega doses that are potentially some nutrients can be toxic you know like vitamin Mm -hmm. a if you take too much you can reach toxicity although of course you need a ton of that most B vitamins, you just pee them out. Mm-hmm. You know, your body won't help you, but your liver eventually and your kidneys will be like, Hello, right. I have to filter all this stuff out of you. So I think there's a there's a reasonable o- there's a reasonable approach sure. to supplements that really depend on where you are in your life. Like again, if you're a woman, there are times of your month where you do need more iron. You mm-hmm. may need not all women, but some women need more iron. There are some other parts of your life when you're going to need more protein and more fat like when you're pregnant right and especially if you're a smoker or an ex-smoker there's really a ton of evidence that taking vitamin c and vitamin e is actually protective also of your brain and it really helps counterbalance the effects of menopause so smoking is the number one cause of early menopause in women and this is really it kills your
0: ovaries. It's just it, in, in 2020, it's like, what are you doing if you still smoke? You know how many it's people insane, do
1: that. I know. No, they know you are. I don't
0: think many of our listeners smoke. Well, okay, go good. out on a limb.
1: Good, but maybe they know somebody who does. <laughs> I'm sure and they do. Okay, sure it's more of a reason to quit. Or if you're an ex smoker, because so many people are, it is good perhaps to consider taking antioxidant supplements. So Even if you only smoked 100 cigarettes in your entire life, there is evidence that it's good for you to take the supplement. This is the only supplement I mm. would recommend sometimes.
0: So what about purpose, spirituality? What role does that play in brain health? You mentioned earlier that men need women in their life. <laughs> That's good for their, their sanity, for their for their brain. What about purpose?
1: I think purpose is really important in part because it has an antidepressant effect. So we know that depression in midlife is a strong risk factor for Alzheimer's disease or dementia later on in life, and for many people, depression is linked to solitude or to anxiety. And having a support system or a spiritual practice or anything that just makes you feel grounded and centered and supported seems to have also a positive effect on brain health long-term, also short-term.
0: So my last question, other than obviously everyone's got to pick up the XX brain, but any advice to someone out there who's, you know, has a loved one that's maybe struggling uh, or just concerned about developing dementia or Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's and sort of, I think people, you know, often it can be, you know, uh, information is tough to process and people get overwhelmed and they start to get worried. Like any advice, any advice for someone who's kind of struggling with this right now?
1: My best advice is to work with a medical professional who actually knows what they're doing (laughs) and how to interpret all the tests that people do because those tests are only as good as the doctor who's going to guide you to address them, right? So if you know your ApoE genotype, you might be freaking out because you are an ApoE4 carrier. And then you go to the internet and you find out that according to some people, you have to eat a lot of fat According to other people, you shouldn't eat any, right? The same with family history. You might. I have so many patients who come to us terrified who say to me, like, my mom had early Alzheimer's disease. It's like, okay, what age was your mom when she started having symptoms? 60. For, but on clinical purposes and from a clinical perspective, 60 is not early Alzheimer's disease. It's late onset Alzheimer's because the real genetically determined cases of Alzheimer's develop Alzheimer's when they're 40. Wow. Yes, those are the genetically determined Alzheimer's disease patients. They're 40, 45, they're definitely younger than 60. So if your parent was over 60 when they developed the symptoms of Alzheimer's, chances are there is no genetic mutation involved. It's much more likely to be something else that's causing the Alzheimer's symptoms and then it's really important to get tested you know there's there's a tendency to just say oh you know my my mom my dad has Alzheimer's disease but it might be something else and the good strong differential diagnosis is really important and the sooner you start working with a neurologist that you really trust or a medical professional that you really trust the better for you and for your family
0: amen to that Dr. Lisa Moscone (laughs) thanks so much
2: thank you